Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I'm very proud to have with me on the podcast, Nelson Lichtenstein. Nelson is research professor in the Department of History at University of California, Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He has a bachelor's from Dartmouth College and a PhD from the University of California, Berkeley. He's held fellowships from National Endowment for Humanities, Rockefeller and Guggenheim Foundations, University of California, and Fulbright Commission and Oregon Center for the Humanities. He's the author of numerous books, including his most recent book, which was co-authored with Judith Stein, A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism. And that is what we talk about in this conversation. We start by talking about uh, his collaboration with Judith Stein, who is uh, now passed, um, and he talks about some of her ideas and how they began working on it and how he uh, continued the book after she passed. Um, we talk about why Clinton focused on economic issues for his presidency, uh, both both terms, but definitely the first term. Uh, we talk about Al Fromm and the Democratic Leadership Council, the impact of Ross Perot in the 92 presidential election. We talk about some of the important figures in Clinton's economic team, failures of healthcare, economic negotiations with Japan, NAFTA, the 94 crime bill, repealing Glass-Steagall, uh, legacy of the Clinton presidency, and many other topics. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think that there's been some... Um, debate and there's been some uh, work that's been done now on the Clinton presidency now that we're, you know, 30 and 35 years uh, away from it, at least from the first term. And, and that's usually when people start kind of thinking about uh, historically how presidents uh, worked and the, you know, efficacy of their presidency. And, and uh, you know, Nelson is uh, got a really great voice here. He's, you know, a lot of a lot of people have been saying, well, what, what was really effective here? And and was it effective? And he asked a lot of good questions. His book is deeply researched. Uh, it's very specific in a lot of areas. Um, it's a great account of, of this time and of the presidency. And I found it very engrossing. He's a, a fantastic person, uh, quite brilliant. And uh, I really, really enjoyed uh, speaking with him. As always, you can find this conversation and all of the conversations at Converging Dialogues at Substack.com. I'm also on YouTube. Uh, so uh, follow, share, subscribe, um, contribute if you'd like. I appreciate the contributions. And uh, tell your friends. And uh, sharing is, uh, is definitely what helps uh, keep the podcast growing. So I want more of that. And uh, now I bring you Nelson Lichtenstein. I am here with Nelson Lichtenstein. Uh, Nelson, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, looking forward to talking with you. Glad to be here. Yeah, you have written a, uh, a, a I'll say a fabulous book. <laughs> uh, you've you. written a, a fabulous book, which is called A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism. Uh, definitely caught my eye, and uh, I kind of just inhaled this and really, really loved it. I loved all the detail in there. So we'll talk all about that. Before we do, um, why well, I should make a note of this. This is uh, you and Judith Stein, who is now uh, is, uh, gone from us. She's passed. Um, but uh, why don't you tell us a little bit before we get into the book uh, about who you are, both professionally, academically, and uh, anything that's uh, 
relevant uh, at the moment? Yeah, I'm a, a, a taught for many years at the University of California, Santa Barbara, before that University of Virginia. Uh, I, you know, I, I, uh, I'm an academic, uh, but actually kind of a, I try to be a little bit of an activist if I can, you know, um, I, <laughs> I, I was sort of trained as a labor historian, but I, I actually don't quite like the word labor historian. I mean, because labor, capital, politics, ideas, they're all one, uh, one ass, one thing, and, and you can't divorce one from the other. So, um, you know, uh, I mean, and many, many, many people who think of themselves sort of as, as labor historians are really just students of capital, students of, uh, of business. And, and I, so I wrote a book on Walmart, you know, and then here I'm writing a book uh, on, on, on policy, uh, let me, t- mm-hmm. on policy and, uh, uh, you know, which is, which is, which is crucial to, well, to the, to the labor movement, to the welfare state, to, uh, all sorts of things that, uh, that was, that were taking place, uh, in the last 30 and 40 years. So, um, uh, anyway, so I, I, I have written one of my, actually recently in the news, the UAW has been gone, gone on strike and I, and I wrote a biography of Walter Ruther, the famous uh, leader of the UAW. So I've been talking a lot about that. Uh, and there's a, it's a huge contrast between, the status of labor in the 1990s and in the in the Clinton era and today, and and maybe we'll we'll, we'll touch on that as well. So um, uh, that's what I that's how I've been doing, uh, and um, I've uh, I've enjoyed it, and I've had a, had some wonderful grad students uh, again, who who by the way who are come to work with me because they see the question of of labor, the me, labor metaphysics, so called, that that you know the 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 society should work in the interest of working people, but they often study things like finance or international trade or or uh, you know uh, 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 things of that sort. So uh, you know it, uh, the, 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 the the moniker labor historian, I think, should be perhaps retired, and we're just historians mm. with a, with a particular point of view. Mm. Yeah, no, that's that's very that's, that's very helpful. It's a nice it's a nice context. Um, so with the book, uh, very fascinating, very, very fascinating. Um, so to start, you mentioned your late co-author, as I, as I, as I said, Judith yeah. Stein, uh, I guess talk about, you talk about, in the, I think in the introduction or preface or whatever, but did you talk about her contribution, what her, yeah. uh, kind of program was, how she started the book, it came together yeah. and how you finished it, uh, without her actually. Yeah. Well, I've known Judith Stein for many decades and uh, she's a greatest, she was a, she was a great historian, very important. She wrote a book on the um, uh, running steel, running America about the, cl- the decline of the steel industry. And then she wrote a book on the, the, the 1970s. She called it a crucial uh, uh, decade, one in which uh, we moved from, from factories to finance. That was the phrase she used. Uh, so Judith had the idea for this book and she had a proposal and a book contract um, and then she just begun it really, uh, and, and sort of sketching it out. Uh, she hadn't done much, uh, I mean, a little bit of research and, 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 a, and maybe a kind of couple rough, rough chapters. Um, and then, uh, and I, and she, then she died, passed away in the spring of 2017. Mm-hmm. I wrote an obituary, uh, which, which for descent, which kind of explained where she was, uh, historiographically and what her perspectives were. Uh, and as a result of that, her agent asked me to, to take it, take over it. And, um, I, 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 I remember it was, I assembled my graduate students and we looked over, you know, and we, we discussed what would, what would happen. But as I indicated in the, in this preface, I, um, 
It's funny. It's funny. Uh, collaborating with anyone is, is often hard. And then, of course, she passed away. So while the idea of a book about the Clinton administration uh, was hers and, you know, and, and that that was a, an important, you know, um, uh, both both politically and also in, uh, economically, uh, it was hers and some ideas she had. I agreed with them anyway, and she was just beginning to sketch them out, like ideas about varieties of capital that was a issue in the early 90s. Uh, and, you know, so that was, but basically I wrote the book. I mean, I mean, I basically, mm-hmm. I, the book is mine. And, uh, but I'm happy to have her on the cover because um, I, 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 I uh, respect, venerate, you know, and I think she's a terrific uh, she was a, she was a kind of force. She was both an intellect and a kind of moral mm. force for many, many people. So, um, but I, I can't really, again, I can't really say, I can say, I can sort of say what some of her ideas were that I think I, I know they were, but I, but many things in the book, I don't know whether she would have, you know, gone along with or not. Uh, I mean, I think she probably would have, we were on the left in general, but I, I can't say that, mm. you know, for, for sure, because she did, she did pass away. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's very, very nice. Yeah, I think it's it's nice that you give her, you know, kind of her due and, and credit. So, I guess I guess a way that that could be helpful to kind of come into this is a kind of a, a general kind of a preamble here. So, typically, people write about presidents. You know, what is it, thirty, forty years? You wait a generation or two, and and you know, there's there's certain moments. And I, when I was when I was reading this, I said, "Oh, I guess it's it's kind of coming upon that time for at the very least uh, first term." Uh, Clinton's been a solid thirty years, thirty plus years, and I think for a while people had this idea that oh, the economy was so good, we ended with a surplus or whatever, and and you know the '90s were just this boom, and and so the the book is kind of the opposite. It says yes, there's some 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 highlights here, some positive light moments, but there's a lot of things that didn't go right. And I don't know if that's because, you know, we had 9-11 and the wars and then we had the financial crash and people have just kind of forgot about it or, you know, the whole uh, impeachment thing. But it, it was really nice to see you kind of tackle the, the mostly the, the economics of, of the Clinton administration showing some of the slip ups here. So I guess the one Major question for Clinton in, uh, when he came into into office, and we can talk about some of his early beginnings, but why was his general focus on economics? Um, and why did he choose, you know, kind of the now we know failed universal health care and some of the labor rights stuff? Mm-hmm. Why was his focus on, on economics uh, for, for the in the beginning? Yeah. At the very least? Well, let me say first that, I mean, there is a reason that history exists because as a discipline, because one can get insights into into events and, and see the consequences, you know, when you have a certain mm. amount of time and to see how things worked out, you know, mm. and you could, you, you could go back to the, you get the whether the whether the French Revolution has worked out, <laughs> that would also be mm-hmm. something to, you know, or other or the, 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 the Protestant Reformation. How's that done? <laughs> anyway, so mm-hmm. the Clinton, I mean, so you, you get a certain. Uh, insight as time passes. Uh, and the, the, by the way, the, the title of the book uh, is really a takeoff on a short book written by Janet Yellen, currently the mm. Secretary of Treasury, and Alan Blinder, an important economist and also in the Clinton administration. They wrote a, a very short little book called a, a Fabulous Decade. They wrote it in the year 2000. 
And yes, they pointed out that uh, unemployment was low, the uh, the um, uh, budget was balanced, the stock market was booming, and you know, et cetera. There were many, you know, many things. And and this was the period when uh, economists on Wall, oh, this is sort of the Goldilocks economy, not too hot, not too cool, uh, mm. just right. Well, you know, things happened after that, and, and it, which which puts a different a different flavor on it. Um, and and I, and, and I, I indicate that some of the uh, Disasters of the two, certainly 2008 and um, uh, were, you know, you could lay, lay a good deal of it at Clinton's feet and his people. Now, um, Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton comes of age in the 60s and early 70s. Um, so he's comes out of the, a certain kind of new left world. Uh, you know, um, he um, uh, by the 70s, when he's politically ambitious, and he clearly was everywhere. Every, all his friends knew that he wanted to go go back to Arkansas and, and certainly become either a senator or governor of the state. And then and then beyond that, something beyond that. Anyway, mm-hmm. but Arkansas is a poor state. I mean, it's always this, you know the second poorest in the country after Mississippi. Um, and the the fundamental problem of any at least anyone who's not just self-serving, uh, if you're a governor or, or a politician in Arkansas, is how do you economic development? And Clinton uh, was, uh, you know, uh, smart enough, uh, liberal enough, um, connected enough with other people, and I want to talk about that in a second, to know that the traditional Southern way of, uh, you know, getting jobs, which was to have low wages, uh, uh, you know, just recruit, uh, you know, buy payroll, as, as it were, uh, you know, uh, and have poor services, uh, bad education, you know, but, but you know, but, you know, have some job, minimum wage jobs. Well, Clinton knew that was, that was not where he wanted to go. Uh, he hmm. wanted, and he, and he went all around the world as, as governor. I mean, he went to Japan, he went to Northern, to Northern Italy, he went to hmm. Germany, looking for models and and other ways of of of, of you know in, in enhancing economic development in in arkansas and and he then he and he was as i say he, he wrote one of the things about his as being a Rhodes scholar which he was um, but he he connected himself with all sorts of people uh kind of also came out of the new left but were interested in you know in well in this period of stagflation in the mid 70s they were you know what's wrong with the american economy and we have to do something about it uh people like robert reich and i Ira Magaziner uh, and uh, and and uh, the, the whole bunch of, of people. Uh, the, the, by the way, he would go famously to these Renaissance. Um, what were they called? Uh, the, at New Year's Eve, they would have these Renaissance weekends. <laughs> yeah, you know, and yeah. you think of oh, well, New Year's Eve, a lot of uh, you know dancing and partying, and they, I'm sure they drank uh, enough. But but what what these Renaissance weekends were were, were seminars mm-hmm. on you know uh, workshops mm-hmm. on you know what you know what do we do politically about healthcare or about you know unemployment, and that's what it was all about. Um, and he was you know that was his sort of uh, lingua franca. He 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 was mm-hmm. a sort of serious. Uh, it's, it's sort of serious. I mean, he would, you know, had his own problems, but he was he was kind of serious minded in that respect. Um, and then, um, of course, the Democrats were losing. Uh, you know, this was a period really from the, from Nixon on, when the Democrats were losing, and Jimmy Carter's uh, administration was sort of a, was kind of a. Well, one term it was, it, you know, he was defeated by by Reagan and then Bush. So, so it was also combined with a political uh, agenda. How do the Democrats get back in and 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 hmm. and you know be a governing party? And by the by the year 1992, there had already been uh, you know at least 15 years of wage stagnation. 
uh, unemployment was was higher uh, in 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 that period and so, and even before. Um, and so the, the, there are these manifest economic problems facing the country. And Clinton, you know, that was what he was concerned with. He he was not a cultural warrior, you know, in that respect. Uh, um, I'll just say that just one thing. Maybe we'll get to the, the famous, famous phrase that uh, James Carville, uh, a campaign consultant, uh, uh, but but more than that, uh, uh, not more than just, you know, manipulating the. The, the polls, uh, the famous phrase that, that he stuck on the on the wall of the Clinton war room in Little Rock was called the economy stupid, meaning <laughs> keep your eye on that issue. Don't go off on uh, and, and, and try to, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, debate with George H.W. Bush, various cultural questions or or or. Um, or Pat Buchanan, who was, uh, uh, you know, kind of more right-winged uh, Republican at that time. Keep your eye focused on the economy, on reviving it, on getting better wages for working class people. That was what, you know, keep it on that. Don't talk about the budget, you know, balancing it or not, which Clinton didn't talk very much about that in the um, in the uh, in his 1992 campaign. So that that was uh, uh, that's where he came, he came from in part. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That 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 makes that resonates and. I guess it's interesting because, yeah, as you're talking about in the 70s and 80s, you know, the, the economic landscape, it was, yeah, recession, inflation, deindustrialization, de all of these things. He had this kind of tense relationship with, with the labor movement in, uh, when he was governor of Arkansas. But I guess, could you talk about when he was running um, and he started to become aligned with Al Fromm and a Democratic Leadership Council? And he was disengaging from unions and embracing markets more than government. And then this is where we eventually get that third way. But as he's building that 92 campaign, knowing the landscape economically, knowing kind of who he's aligning with, I guess, why did he choose to focus on the economy in the way that he did? Obviously, yeah. the economy was central, but why specifically did he, he choose yeah. the specific way? Okay, let me make two points here. There's no doubt. And let me say, the, the, if, if you talk, think of the American labor movement in its, um, the entire course of the 20th century and, and recently, the worst hmm. period for the labor movement in terms of attractiveness, uh, kind of uh, as, as a kind of liberal, progressive lodestar, is this period of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So this, is, this is the worst period um, uh, for a variety of reasons. That, you know, they were, they were the, the labor movement was the last cold warriors. Uh, they, were, they were not uh, 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 good on, on, on race and, and, and gender questions in this period. Uh, and so, and then, and then uh, it was also a period of, of anti-labor um, uh, uh, kind of uh, political and economic movements on the part of corporations, et cetera. So Clinton, and this is a, a, one of the fatal flaws, I think, of Clinton in this was in Arkansas and in the White House. Is he he wanted to be a liberal, uh, economically liberal, really without labor, without without dealing with labor. So he he crossed in in, in Arkansas when when he did propose a tax increase to pay for better schools, and which was you know a substantial thing. He did that by by and, and Hillary did too by being demagogically. Uh, critical of the teachers unions, you know, which was, you know, it, it was, it was sort of, he, he thought that was politically clever and somehow that would gain him some credit. I, I'm not sure it did, but they did that. So this is one of the elements of liberalism in this period. Now, 
when it comes to the, then the campaign for the White House, and here is where I am sort of revisionist. I'm a little taking issue with the, the general view of, of some journalists and other historians is that is about the Democratic Leadership Council. The Democratic Leadership Council is formed in the uh, mid-early 80s, really among Southern Democrats, um, or seeking to, to preserve um, their political viability by moving to the right. I mean, people could see that the South was shifting toward the Republicans and, and, mm. and the DLC was going to be, okay, how can we, uh, you know, uh, preserve a Southern, uh, really white Democrats in, in office. And that was what it was. It's, its point was, um, and it, it was, a, it was, the DLC was a, um, collection of off existing office holders, uh, like, uh, like none from Georgia or Rob in, in, in Virginia, et, et cetera, and a few Northerners, but not as many. So, they, for example, one of the things that DLC did was to create the Southern primary. It's still with us, uh, you know, a big primary in March with lots of Southern states. Well, the whole point of that was so that a Southern uh, figure uh, could, you know, see, become president, uh, you know, with with with, you know, lots of, of what they thought was, you know, white Democratic votes. Um, the Al Fromm was one of the key leaders of it. And frankly, I find him a braggart. <laughs> I find I find <laughs> that he is always exaggerating the influence of the DLC. And so, for example, uh, I mean, yes, Clinton Clinton did become a member of the well, the leader of the the the, the uh, chair or chair or the I guess the chair of the DLC. Uh, I think in nineteen ninety and uh, ninety one. Well, Alfram goes down to to, to Arkansas. And it tells Bill, look, uh, I want you to, you know, become leader of the DLC. I'll, 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 I'll make you president and I'll be famous or something like that. Well, Bill Clinton, like, takes a year to decide. I mean, it wasn't like he just, this was his thing. He took a year to decide. So he, in my view, he used the DLC as much as they used him. And, and hmm. one thing I found in my research is, um, and this, here we get to this economy, uh, a stupid question. Um, the DLC thought that they well, we should the Democratic Party should play the culture card. Uh, it should uh, be against welfare. It should be in favor of you know uh, the Second Amendment, you know, guns. It should be uh, you know more hostile to gay marriage. Uh, it, it wanted to. It, it thought that the way you appeal to white Southerners was was on that basis and. They called what had been the traditional Democratic Party view, you know, strengthen the working class, strengthen unions, uh, you know, uh, use the welfare state if needed. They called that liberal fundamentalism, which they were against. Um, so so uh, Carvel's hmm. statement on the wall was that was an anti-DLC perspective. And Clinton uh, and his people in the first two years, certainly, of the administration uh, were ignored the DLC. And I have their memos from Al Fromm to Bill Clinton saying, hey, what are you doing? You know, why aren't you uh, dealing with us? It, it, you know, he he's very uh, upset. Um, and uh, and 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 one of the famous one of the DLP kind of uh, 
academic uh, intellectuals, uh, 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 William Gaston. He says, he says, uh, who, was in the, who was in the Clinton administration, he said, well, we were sort of like a, a, a raisin in a, in a bowl of white rice or something. You know, we, you just, just, you know there's just a few of us <laughs> and we, didn't, we had no influence. And that's the first two years. So, I, so mm. I think, I do think there's an exaggeration of the uh, importance of the DLC. Now, later on, it, uh, Clinton did move to the right and, and the DLC would take a lot of credit for that. Um, but I, but I would say just one, one more thing, uh, mm-hmm. in the, in the early, we'll get to this in a, I'm sure you, in a bit, a number of the things which are, which are considered, um, conservative in the, in the early part of the, of the Clinton administration, for example, the balancing the budget, um, the DLC had nothing to do with it. They really, they, they, they were, mm-hmm. they were not the, they were not players. They, 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 they were focused on these cultural warfare issues. I mean, uh, uh, well, Bill Gaston, for example, loved the idea of, uh, you know, a public service, you know, for youth. I mean, you know, kind of, a uh, you know, well, that's a, might mm. be a good idea, but you know, that, or, or, or ideas of, uh, of, uh, let's, um, uh, you know, w- welfare reform was their big thing, their big thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they saw that not just because it was, what's going to do for, for, uh, the people on welfare, but they saw it as a cultural marker, um, that does pass, but not till 1996. It didn't. It was not hmm. the first thing that Clinton uh, pushed for when he became president. We can talk about that. So, hmm. so when we get to the 92 campaign, we can just have this as a small footnote. But you know, I feel like it's it's somewhat yeah. relevant here. Yeah. Is you know, is uh, Ross Perot. Um, it, uh, Perot, you don't have yeah. to go long on this, but Perot is is such a such a fascinating. Mm-hmm person uh and then what he did in the 92 campaign he, didn't he he pulled out and then he re-entered in october and there was some weird thing mm-hmm. there and, and the mem- my memory's fuzzy mm-hmm. on this but um right you know i guess kind of talking about these kind of you had three dueling legitimately uh ideas mm-hmm. about economy i mean you had bush mm-hmm. uh, hw and then you had clinton and you had perot and just talk about again this kind of in the end Clinton wins, but uh, that wasn't always a sure thing. And so I guess kind of to try to find this pulse of where people were trying to figure out economically, maybe just talk about the impact, I guess, a bit of of Perot. Perot Perot is important and interesting and has a bit and has some consequences. So uh, Ross Perot, um, you know, a Texas billionaire, uh, uh, but not identified, by the way, uh, he didn't identify as a Southerner. He was he, he that was not his calling card, um, mm. uh, and and he he didn't play race the race card or anything of that sort. Anyway, but he did what he did uh, was you know we that there are we have he helped uh, advance the idea that the the American economy is has real problems and we need some really important structural changes. That was one of the things he did. He was of course um, hostile to the free trade. Uh, packs that both Bush and Clinton would eventually Clinton himself would champion, uh, and so his famous phrase was, you know, if we if we pass NAFTA North North uh, American Free Trade Agreement, there'll be a giant sucking sound, you know, pulling American industry into Mexico. <laughs> so he's famous for that. Um, he also, but 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 his economic solutions um, were, you know, okay, we must balance the budget. That's that's crucial. You know, get rid of the deficit. So that had a kind of impact on on uh, and and some of Clinton people said, well, we have to accommodate, or at least we have to try to attract some of the the Perot voters and some of the Perot the pro sentiment. Interestingly, by the way. Perot's biggest uh, support was not in the Deep South. 
not in, not in, not in, not in uh, Virginia, for example, uh, where I, w- I was living at the time, but in like, places like Maine and Washington State. Mm-hmm. And the upper Midwest, he 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 wasn't you know playing uh, this this old fashioned Southern card. Anyway, he 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 entered the he entered the race in the spring of 1992. Did very well. At one point, you know, Clinton was in, in third position <laughs> behind Barrow and Bush. Uh, then, in, in a, for some pecu- peculiar reasons, you know, I mean, having to, I mean, right, <laughs> he pulls out. Uh, you know, I don't mm-hmm, know. They, mm-hmm. He had a wedding of his daughter. I don't know. It's still confusing why. Mm-hmm. Idiosyncratic. Yeah, yeah. He pulls out. But then, <laughs> in I think in September, he comes back in. And he ends up winning mm-hmm. 19% of the vote, which was a um, yeah. um, a, 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 lot of, a lot of the vote. And, and I'll just give you my bottom line on, on Perot and Clinton. I mean, Clinton mm-hmm. makes mistakes. I mean, really fundamental blunders, political. And one of them was not trying to consolidate the Perot vote with the Democrats. And that would have meant not doing NAFTA, you know, mm. uh, at, at least because that was one of the big things that Perot was pushing. So in, in rejecting that, it, it, it left these Perot voters sort of up for grabs. And, uh, you know, I think uh, over, over the next decade, many of them did you know, kind of filter back into the Republican, into the Republican orbit. Uh, the Democrats, they, they didn't, they never really fundamentally captured them. Um, now, would Clinton have been uh, defeated at Perot, not been in the elect, in the, in the race? The, here, political scientists disagree on, on this. And, and mm-hmm. us, they basically say that the Perot vote, uh, you know, they took e- equally from the Democrats and Republicans. Um, um, it certainly, but I mean, in the end, it certainly meant Clinton got 43% of the vote, <laughs> you know, Perot mm-hmm. got 19% and George H.W. Bush got 37%, which is pretty bad. So, uh, that's mm-hmm. what that was. So it, it did mean that, that Clinton coming into office, you know, uh, virtually every congressman and senator that he had to work with had a higher proportion of the vote than he did. <laughs> which did not make him <laughs> that strong a figure when it came to dealing with Congress. And he often wasn't. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's, it's a fascinating uh, uh, presidential campaign for sure. So, you know, he wins and he puts his team together, his cabinet, his economic team. And you, yeah. you talk about this, you know, he selects Tyson and Summers and Reich and, you know, and yeah. I guess what was the message he was trying to send by selecting these folks and and then and then dovetail us into why, you know, healthcare was one of the big things and, and why it was yeah. uh, such a failure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, the, the appointments of any president, you know, they're always a coalition. Um, in, in, with Clinton, th- there were clearly some of these people who I call them these sort of industrial policy um, liberals, uh, many of whom he'd known. Uh, some were new to him uh, and they did get positions. Um, and when I mentioned the we use the phrase industrial policy, which was a a. Um, uh, a theme of, of, of economic rejuvenation in that moment. And it is again today, by the way, in the, in 2023, mm-hmm. um, it, what we mean is sort of a, a governmental guidance of investment, uh, as well as in some cases, uh, managing trade with, uh, a, a comp- with countries, uh, who are thought to be, uh, uh, you know, unfairly, uh, uh, you know, dumping, uh, 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 goods in the, in the, in the U S and this mainly Japan, that would be the case. Anyway, hmm. uh, Cl- Clinton appoints some 
to some key positions, uh, some interesting people uh, who, who certainly the DLC was hostile to. <laughs> and, and if the DLC were running the show, they never would have got you know the first base. So among them were, of course, Robert Reich, who's now uh, way to the left on many questions, and then mm, less yeah. so, but nevertheless, yeah. a, a, an advocate of, of a certain kind of industrial policy and a, and, a, and a writer. He'd been writing for a decade very important books that Influential. Ira Magaziner, again, another one of the Oxford uh, people that Clinton knew, uh, a, a kind of a, a, clear, a very much of an advocate of, of, of health, of uh, industrial policy and also health reform. He's, he's made it, he's made sort of in charge of the health reform initiative. Uh, and then Laura Tyson, who is an interesting, uh, the first woman ever chosen head of the uh, uh, Council of Economic Advisors. But um, that wasn't her main calling card. Uh, she uh, had been uh, a part of a group at Berkeley uh, for a decade who'd been trying to figure out, you know, how to, uh, America could have a, 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 a sort of new managed investment strategy to revive American industry. And she was very much in favor of a revival of industry and heavy industry, especially. And then also how to manage trade with Japan. She wrote a book about mm. competing with, you know, who's bashing whom, uh, you know, uh, and Japan in the early nineties was the great trading rival of the U S and people were, you know, yeah. looked to Japan with a certain amount of fear uh, because it's in the, it seemed to be more successful than the U S. So, Laura Tyson is one of three candidates for head of the CEA council. One, the other is Larry Summers, uh, mm-hmm. who will, you know is a much more orthodox figure, and the other is uh, Paul Krugman, uh, yeah. who would become kind of a liberal. He's a liberal today, but in those days he was very much a free trader, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know against really industrial policy. So Clinton chooses Laura Tyson. And that's and that says something because, you know, he agreed with her ideas. She was saying, no, I'm not in favor of of just, uh, you know, new trade packs that have no uh, guidelines on on labor or investment. So she she you know, and she's head of the CEA. Now, it turns out that the Council of Economic Advisor uh, would not be quite the, the, the powerful institution that it had been in earlier decades. Um, uh, and uh, one thing that. Um, I have to now say that Clinton also appoints uh, a number of much more orthodox people, of whom the most important is Robert Rubin from Goldman Sachs uh, as Mm -hmm. first head of the uh, National Economic Council, a kind of new institution that will coordinate economic council throughout the government, uh, economic policy throughout the government, and then later on becomes Secretary of Treasury. So there were also, I mean, I go through the Leon Panetta and um, uh, a number of others who were much, who were more, more orthodox in the usual sense. Uh, and these, then mm. these, there'll be kind of, you know, battles within the administration. And I try to trace them out uh, over all sorts of questions. Um, in this, in this, but in this early period, there, there, the voice of the of the sort of what I, the Clinton left or the industrial policy left, it's definitely there. And uh, and uh, you know, many commentators and observers thought, yes, this is a different kind of administration than you, than went before on economic policy. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 interesting the the cast of characters he he gets in, involved and in, and they I mean people will know these names even still today and it's interesting to kind of see their their own evolution uh, in in various administrations they've served in afterwards and what they do now. So so healthcare he he tackles this I mean we we all remember this in the beginning it was it was really a failed effort we can talk about some of the stuff Obama learned in a minute but um, yeah. I guess the question here is you, you talk this is a little bit in the weeds so I'm curious for you know how much you want to go into this but. 
you talked about the the Jackson Hall group and and how yeah. there was a lot of uh, competition and there was a mix of uh, federal government and HIPCs. Um, yeah. you, so talk about this and then and then uh, Magaziner and, and Clinton duo. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, let me just. The first thing is to say that the Clinton and Mag, and everyone is people saw healthcare reform as industrial policy uh, because mm. uh, the, the the healthcare burden especially on older industries like auto and steel, et cetera, was, was, was great, uh, you know, and, and meant that, that other countries which had, you know, more rational and national systems of health provision were basically, it was, it was a cost advantage to the competitors, uh, mm. uh, uh, foreign competitors of the U.S. So they, so they saw, and, 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 and Clinton was able to get magazine or they were to get lots of, of um, uh, business people, the Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, to, yes, we need health care reform because it's a, this is a burden on us. Uh, as, the, as the people at, at Ford Motor Company said, we pay more money for, for health care than for steel. You know? yeah. and, that, and that would not be the case, say, in Germany or, or, in, the, or in Japan or in Canada. Okay, mm-hmm. now, Clinton you know, is a person of his time. He was afraid of single-payer um, the Republicans had demonized that, uh, and hmm. he wanted, and he said, well, look, we're going to have what, what the, the kind of health care we're going to have. And, it, and the idea of it did emerge from this group called the Jackson Hole group. What that were, what they were was, were a number of, um, insurance com- big insurance companies, uh, that met, uh, uh, at, um, I think it's Paul Edelman, uh, uh, Paul, Edelman, I think Paul Edelman, uh, I think I've got his name right. He was a healthcare expert, uh, going back several decades, met at his big, you know, country place in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And they were, were meeting for a couple of three years, you know, in this late 80s, early 90s. And they came up with the idea of what they called managed competition, which meant that um, uh, you would have uh, uh, large uh, um, groups of employers who would be, were really forced to purchase health insurance because there'd be a mandate on uh, employers that if you have more than 50 workers, yes, you must, you know, give them health insurance. So the employers would come together and would purchase in block, you know, uh, insurance from then big, big insurance companies uh, that were getting, they were getting bigger, by the way, in this, in this period. And some of them were, were becoming, um, uh, uh, you know, um, health maintenance organizations as well, like Kaiser. Um, so, uh, you know, so, so yes, you'd use the market. The market would, would be used to drive down prices uh, of insurance, uh, but uh, there'd be great efficiencies because everyone would have to uh, buy, in, buy insurance. You, and, mm. and, uh, and, 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 and it would be, so this man, it was managed, a managed market, as it were. That was the idea. And the Jackson Hole Group was in favor of that. Now, these were, again, very large insurance companies. They were at the center of it. Uh, there were some, also some big companies as well. Now, let me just have my big, big insurance companies um, uh, thought that if, uh, they, they liked the idea of national, national health insurance because it meant millions and millions of new clients, right? They mm-hmm. liked that idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they were worried about price controls directly, uh, but, if, but if it was just the market and, the, and you know, you'd have a slight decline in the price, 
they could make a lot of money. Um, hmm. And so they, you know, were on board with the Clinton plan to begin with. Um, hmm. The group of insurance companies that hated the Clinton plan were the smaller ones. Uh, and sure. their business model had nothing to do with getting lots of clients. Rather, their business model was to only insure the young and the healthy, <laughs> to mm. cherry pick, as it were. Mm. And so mm. they hated the idea that they would have that that there be there be kind of universal uh, coverage, uh, because that meant would mean that they would have to insure some of the uh, the old and the sick, <laughs> and they didn't like mm -hmm. that. And all the famous Harry and Louise. TV commercials. Now, I don't know if you'd have to be pretty, you'd have to be at least in your fifties to remember these, but they were very, very successful anti-health um, uh, uh, insurance, um, uh, anti-Clinton plan health insurance commercials in which, uh, hmm. uh, you know, a Harry and Louise, a, 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 you know, husband and wife were sitting around the table, you know, denouncing the, basically saying, oh, this is, this, 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 this plan is too big and too cumbersome and, and too many government bureaucrats, et cetera, et cetera. And they were very successful. But the point is they were, the, they were paid for and made and made by, by the smaller insurance companies that didn't mm -hmm. like one of the features of the Clinton plan, which was a universal coverage that the big insurance companies were happy to have because that meant more clients. Mm -hmm. Now, I think what, what torpedoed the Clinton plan actually was this. It was two things. One, the Clintons uh, and, and Ira Magaziner, despite we think of them as sort of new wave Democrats, et cetera, actually mm -hmm. were thinking about big O-line industry and the problems they had. You know, companies like Ford or Chrysler or U.S. Steel or, you know, big companies like that. And they would have benefited enormously. There's no doubt about it from the plan. Uh, uh, but but in American capitalism was changing. Mm. And the Walmarts and the Pizza Huts uh, and the, uh, the, 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 the telecommunication companies that were, that were shedding unions and, and moving to a kind of lower wage, uh, uh, sort of a, a low benefit model. These companies had more and more power. Um, and so you had actually within the Chamber of Commerce and within the National Associated Manufacturers and actually within the Business Roundtable, these groups that, that the Clinton was trying to work with and, and seemingly successfully, there were internal revolts, internal revolts by by the the by the franchises, uh, the, the McDonald's and the the Hallmark cards and the and the service sector and the and the Tyson's uh, Foods and and all of those companies that were that were that were that, that were booming in this period, but what had low wages, low benefits, and basically wanted to foist any health and didn't either didn't want to give their employees health insurance or or foist the cost onto the the, you know, like the partner who might work for an auto company. And that is what ultimately doomed the, 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 the Clinton plan. They were not prepared for that kind of internal revolt. And I would just make the point that neither, I mean, this, this was something that, that, that caught other people by surprise. Like the editors of Fortune magazine, which have been putting out for 50 years, the Fortune 500, right? You know, a big, you know, industrial companies. Well, in the year 1995, they finally decided that maybe they would admit the retailers onto the Fortune 500 list. So bingo, Walmart appears as number four. 
And, and, mm. and by 2000, Walmart's number one. Uh, what that meant was that here's a, a giant company with low wages, low benefits, and militantly hostile to an employer mandate that would require that, that company to, to cover all its workers with health insurance. So that was one thing that, 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 that got the Clintons by surprise. And the second thing was that, the congrat, that the, it, it became clear to Magaziner and to Hillary Clinton and to Bill even that managed competition was just a theory and not a reality. That the idea that you're going to let the market, or even if you manage it, reduce the price, this wasn't going to work or it wouldn't necessarily work. And the Congressional Budget Office came up with, a, with a, the head of it, uh, 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 Hauer, came up with a phrase that, look, managed competition is a pig in a poke. <laughs> we don't know if it's going to work. <laughs> what we do need is, is price controls. We need, we need old-fashioned World War II price controls. Then you can, you know, and, and he, he used it, we need the exercise of sovereign power. That was the phrase they used. And, and, the, and the Clintons accepted that. Well, once that was the case, then the big insurance company said, to hell, we don't want this. To hell with that. We don't want those kind of price controls. And so they, they bailed on it. So those were the things that, 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 that I, I mean, then, of course, in addition, the Republican Party was moving to the right. But, I, but, I, but actually, one of the things that, again, is a little bit revisionist about my book is I, I, I'm not focusing quite so much on partisan politics per se. I'm looking for these underlying economic structures that, and, and how they're shifting. And I, and, and I, and I think the, the shift of the Republican party to the right uh, and becoming militantly hostile to health insurance, I think reflects the rise of the Walmarts and the pizza huts and the, mm. and the low wage um, uh, uh, companies, uh, you know, in, in the, in the, uh, Within the Republican Party, within the Republican Party, I mean the National Restaurant Association, for example, which is basically a group of you know the McDonald's of the world and and et cetera, and the, and the hamburger chains. I mean they they become very influential in the Republican Party uh, with money and mm. et cetera, all sorts of things. Mm. I guess the the question here is is that if there was if they were trying to use a lot of um, for healthcare private sector and corporations. Mm-hmm. Was there any mm-hmm. federal government in- involvement that they wanted? Did they, I mean, it, it wasn't that they, oh, well, it wasn't yeah, there, the, right? Yes. The, fed, yes. the federal government would um, uh, establish these, what were called health purchasing alliances. Uh, in other words, they would be kind of uh, uh, regional entities of the government uh, in which uh, employers, uh, uh, small and medium, and even some big ones would, 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 become part of, and then they would collectively purchase the health insurance. And then, of course, there'd be guidelines in terms of the quality and things of that sort and universality. Hmm. So, yeah, the, the government plays a, a role. Uh, it was just that the Congressional Budget Office thought you need to play a greater role. If you, if you want to know what the real costs of a program are, you, you, you can't ultimately let the market determine. You have to actually have you know, uh, uh, actual a budget for this. And, um, and so the, the government is very, very much involved. Now, now, Clinton was trying. I mean, he, this was an era when uh, uh, Ronald Reagan had inaugurated a mistrust of government. And so Clinton rhetorically mm. was saying, oh, the government's going to keep out of this. But in fact, it was right in there. And when it came to, to with mm. Obama, when I think Obama learned uh, was we're going to cut hard and fast deals with all of the key players, insurance, business, 
you know, et cetera. We're going to cut those deals and make them stick so that we, so they, they, we don't, they don't abandon ship, you know, halfway through the, the program. And in addition to that, we're going to eliminate the employer mandate, which again, these, these are the Walmarts of the world really hated and we'll just mm-hmm. raise taxes. We'll raise, it, was e- it was actually easier to raise taxes on wealthy individuals uh, than to raise taxes or have a mandate on business. And so the, one of the things no one knows about the, the Obama plan is it has an extremely progressive and fairly aggressive tax increase in there. Uh, and hmm. uh, that's what pays for uh, a lot of the subsidies that have, that, 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 that have gone into, you know, both making uh, Medicaid very uh, large and also subsidizing people purchasing health insurance. Um, I have a little section in my book about what, what Obama learned. And, and, and in the mm-hmm. debates with mm-hmm. Hillary in 2008, they're going around the country debating, mm-hmm. debating, debating. Well, Hillary really knew health, health insurance. And Obama was actually to the right of Hillary in those debates saying, oh, mm-hmm. we don't want an a, a, a individual mandate. We don't, we don't want the, the government to be involved, quite so involved. And Hillary had learned her lesson. And she knew what she was talking about. And if the, when, the, when, the, when he finally won the, won the nomination and they were you know, planning their their health insurance uh, uh, for the you know program for the administration. He said, "Well, I guess Hillary was kind of right. Hillary was right, <laughs> and the Obama plan <laughs> does. You know, it's really it looks more like the the Clinton plan, but you know, reformed version of the Clinton plan uh, is what it really really was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean Hillary. You know, um, so <laughs> now I mean Hillary is demonized, of course, in this period. Uh, you know, yeah, as like yeah. you know." Yeah, kind of like a Shakespeare, like a you know Lady Macbeth, you know, kind of a thing. You know, the woman having <laughs> right. much power, and that's you know that's right. that's part of American culture. Um, and and she, but she was, she did plunge. She she knew health insurance. She was very, and she went to mm. Capitol Hill. And at first, she was extraordinarily uh, popular and uh, knowledge, and you know, was given a certain due by by Republicans as well as Democrats. Uh, but but I think, I, but the crucial thing was, I think, when the when these when these internal revolts take place within the various business associations and when they abandon ship, that opens the door to the Republican right to just, you know, mm. uh, uh, denounce the plan, you know, in every which way. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel, <clears throat> you know, uh, Hillary was kind of, you know, wrongfully, you know, uh, misaligned for a lot of things. And, you know, it, it is, you know, it is unfortunate uh, some of the views people had. I was going to ask, are you talking about in the book? It just as a kind of, again, a, a, an epilogue on it. You know, what lessons did Obama learn? And I, I guess the, the, you mentioned some of them there. I guess the one thing on that that we have with the, you know, ACA, which people have, you know, tried to repeal a million times and stuff was, I mean, it really was... Uh, it almost didn't go through. I mean, it really was Pelosi yeah. uh, resurrecting right. it oh, from yeah. the dead. Yeah. Uh, end of 09 and early 2010. And then they finally got it through in March. And so, I mean, this was almost didn't even happen. Um, I right. guess, what was it? I guess uh, he learned some lessons from healthcare in the 90s. Yeah. But even then, it almost didn't get across the finish line. What was kind of tricky there, I guess? Yeah, well, right. Of course, the, the Republic, the Democrats didn't quite have the control of the Senate that they uh, they thought they had. By the way, so what? One of the things that does happen, sort of, in terms of politics during the '90s, is the idea of the sixty-vote filibuster threshold, uh, which yeah. makes mm-hmm. you know so difficult everything. Uh, that is that mm-hmm. is for that comes to the fore and 
and becomes a kind of uh, regularized and accepted in the 90s. Mm. It had not been before. Uh, you know, that's, that was really a product of, uh, of Congress, really. Clinton had little to do with that. Mm. And it had to do with the, with the, the, the Democrats in, in Congress sort of accepting the legitimacy of, of, of the Republican filibuster when they, when they sought to do that. But P- Pelosi, Pelosi, you know, uh, kind of finessed the situation by, by uh, uh, basically the House took the Republican, what happened, no, the House took what the Democrats had passed in the Senate and just, they, they were going to change it in a, in, a, in a conference committee, but, but they couldn't do that because now there are only 59 Democrats in the Senate. So he just took it and, and ran with it and it was passed. Um, let me make, make one, one bigger, tra- uh, big point that, that covers every, from a Biden to Clinton and, and whatnot. Hmm. Uh, when a political party knows what it wants uh, and has been sort of, sort of, it's self-educated itself about that, and and they work. They've had internal debates, and they then it. You don't need to compromise. You don't need to. Ha- you don't need to find votes from the Republicans, uh, you know, or another party to to get the bill passed. You can pass it with like fifty, you know, plus one vote. Clinton in that in he. The, the, the health care plan he had there was was a little bit vague and a little and it was shifting and it was and the magaziner kind of wanted to, to compromise. So they were always looking for Republican, uh, you know, some Republican moderates who, and, or, or Democratic Southern Democrats. You know, they were always they were always kind of looking for coalitions. They hadn't quite worked it out by the time Obama <laughs> comes along. There'd been 15 years of, the, of Democratic debate on this. They knew what they wanted. and. They passed it, you know, with a slim margin, but they passed it. And I think that's that, that's a lesson for a party. Uh, you shouldn't fear passing something with a slim margin if you know what you want. Mm, yeah, yeah. I remember it was it was a lot of the what was it the Cornhusker kickback and a lot of the Blue Dog right, Democrats okay, yeah, and all well, that all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but ultimately, yeah. they knew what they wanted, and they and they and they and, mm-hmm. they, and they passed it. And then and then, of course. It took a while. It took a while, but it becomes, you know, part of the furniture. It becomes part of the, mm. the furniture of American, you know, social economic life. And so today, uh, unlike, you know, uh, the first, say, almost eight years after it's passed, the Republicans are not attacking, uh, you know, Obamacare, they just, you know, in, the, in mm-hmm. whatever, you know, that isn't mm-hmm. their thing because it's mm-hmm. there. It's yeah. Exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So quickly, talk about uh, Japan a, a little bit. Uh, you talk about, yeah. you know, Japan was in the in the late eighties, early nineties, right before the recession right. stuff. I mean, they I think it was from yeah. forty five right after the war until until ninety two or whatever was a big competitor. Yeah. I mean, they did so well economically. Right. How, what was do you kind of see these kind of right. neoliberal policies coming out and how Clinton worked with Japan? Just to just chat about that story a little bit. Well, right. Well, the title of my chapter on trade with Japan is. Uh, uh, a detour on the road to neoliberalism, and I, I'll get. To, I mean, I'll get to that. So, so Japan uh, by the 1980s uh, is the second largest economy in the world, and had very rapid grown very rapidly. Um, it's also a different economy. Um, so uh, there are many, many studies of Japan uh, and then novels about it. Obviously, a kind of Orientalist, you know, kind of view of Japan, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. a, a, uh, and, but, but a sort of sense of this is a different variety of capitalism. Uh, 
And Clinton was very much aware of that. Oh, they, they've organized their system differently from us. You know, the banks had closer relationships to manufacturing. The Ministry of Finance was, was guiding investment, things of that sort. And, and many, many Americans and, and the policymakers in the Clinton administration were well aware of that. Uh, There's also a sense uh, that this was a threat. So in the campaign, 1992 campaign, one of Clinton's um, opponents, Paul Songus of um, Massachusetts, n- not a particular liberal, uh, but he said he had a statement um, on the cover of Time magazine. The Cold War is over. Germany and Japan won, meaning hmm. these were two countries on the upswing, uh, competing uh, economically in terms of trade and also having organized their 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 social economy in a different way than Thatcher and Reagan would have. Um, and so many liberals uh, look to Japan and certainly to Germany. Uh, oh, okay. Let's see how they're doing it. Someone like Laura Tyson, for example, did that, or Jeffrey Garten, who would become a key trade representative um, dealing with Japan. So, but when it came to Japan, the 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 Bush administration, the Reagan and Bush, um, or certainly Bush, thought, well, okay, we just need to open up their economy and you know on free market principles, and then we can sell stuff to Japan, like agricultural. Products which which had the U.S. could produce very cheaply, but the Japan had tariffs and whatnot. But it turned out that there was almost no way because of the structure of of Japanese interconnected industries and banks and the kind of trade restrictions that were just embedded in in practically in Japanese politics and culture. There was virtually no way to actually open up that economy. Uh, they would sell things to us, but it was very hard to sell cars or car parts or, or uh, rice or beef or whatever to Japan. And so Clinton came to the conclusion, with advised by, by many people around him, that, look, we just have to tell the Japanese government, we're going to cut, we're going to have like, you're going to buy 20% of all the computer chips that Japan needs from the United States. or we want a quota. You know, I mean, a quota of, of, of automobiles. You know, we, we want you to go from selling 1% of your market to 10% of American automobiles. I mean, you know, I mean, they, this free trade was just not going to work. Uh, and uh, they pushed that for two years uh, with Japan. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, it was clearly not, not neoliberal policy. It was a managed trade policy. Uh, and, uh, and, and, even, and even people like uh, Larry Summers uh, uh, went, went along with it, at least for a while. Now, what happened to that was that two things. One was that Japan's economy, which had been seen like this complete you know, steamroller and, 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 and utterly success, I mean, it went into a real long recession uh, beginning in the really 94 and you know, 90, well, 90, even before 93, but became kind of apparent 94, 95. So the, the, the threat that Japan seemed as a kind of this new model of capitalism, it was lessened because of the long recession that Japan had. I mean, you know, uh, real estate prices were just completely out of sight and they collapsed and all sorts of things like that. And this, but the second thing was um, that Robert Rubin and Larry Summers and people at the Treasury, they sort of liked the idea that Japan had this very large trade surplus with the U.S. um, Because then Japan would have a tremendous amount of of, uh, yen 
and they could buy American bonds. Uh, mm-hmm. And in buying uh, really trillions of, uh, well, a trillion dollars of American bonds, that would keep American interest rates low. Uh, and from Robert Rubin's point of view, uh, the way to expand the American economy was let's have really low interest rates that will make investment easy. Uh, and one way to do that is don't worry about Japan. Uh, don't worry about if Japan's export drive puts uh, Chrysler out of work, out of business or, or, or destroys Midwestern industry. Uh, the, the, the net effect of having a, a kind of investment boom on the on the coast, for example, uh, or in real estate. Uh, is, you know, is much more important. So the Treasury Department was was happy to see uh, the yen a decline in value versus the dollar, which meant Japanese imports to the U.S. would be cheaper, which meant Japan would have more money to invest in U.S. bonds. And that's what happened in 1995 and later. Now, what got hurt was Midwestern manufacturing. Um, uh, that, yeah. that took it on the chin, but that was Ruben's perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a very curious tale, and it's, it's it's interesting how relations between the U.S. and Japan have evolved since since this time as well. Yeah. It's, it's very very fascinating. I, I do want to talk about uh, about NAFTA. So NAFTA is sure. fascinating to yeah. me. Um, yeah. M- yeah, my yeah. my ignorant view is NAFTA really worked for. Some parts of the U.S. for a while. I don't know what it did for the agricultural kind of uh, landscape in the U.S. and for Mexico. But it really did hurt a lot of maybe parts of Mexico and Central American countries, which, you know, I mean, in terms of the U.S., I mean, we we take care of ourselves. But it really Mm -hmm. was an interesting kind of I know it was a lot of people liked it and then they didn't like it. And um, so why don't you tell us, if I remember correctly, NAFTA has its origins during the Reagan administration, but really it's Clinton's baby and um, basically keeps getting ratified throughout all the way up to Obama, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, so yeah, it, just tell it, us about yeah, NAFTA. It had been, yeah. Right. Well, NAFTA emerges when the, 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 Mex- the Mexican economy had 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 high tariffs and uh, a kind of what was called an import substitution economy. That is, they would make stuff behind a tariff law, uh, whether it was you know, cars or all sorts of products. And the mm-hmm. Mexican economy grew very rapidly uh, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, etc., 80. Then the rise in the price of oil and Mexico got, got into debt meant that the Mexican government itself, uh, in order to, to fund the debt, would have to create export earnings and, you know, using the cheap Mexican labor um, and often, mm-hmm. you know, having a, a, some American factories uh, uh, producing stuff, um, you know, to, to fund the debt. And so the Mexican government was in, in favor of, of, a, of a freer trade agreement with the U.S. The Bush administration uh, liked it, liked it, and they had they'd really negotiated it. Uh, and then Clinton, when he came in, had to decide, was he going to, you know, continue to push tab NAFTA or to try to modify it. Um, they did, in a kind of somewhat tepid way, try to, you know, create so-called labor and environmental side agreements. But this was done, this mm. was very tepid and they weren't very good. Um, and the Mexican government was very hostile, especially to the labor. Anything that, 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 that pushed for the creation of independent unions in Mexico the Mexican government really hated because the 
part of the mm. basis of the party of revolutionary institutions support was was the control of labor in the you know in the provinces and the countryside anyway so then clinton and i you know okay clinton they they may have to decide is uh, is the clinton administration going to going to push nafta uh they knew there was a good deal of democratic party opposition to it uh, are they going to push it and uh, I think it was a blunder to do so. I mean, a blunder in the sense that it could have gone the other way. They didn't have to. It had been a Bush administration initiative to begin with. I think one reason Clinton did it is he wanted some semblance uh, of bipartisanship, and he knew he could get some Republican votes for NAFTA. So they push it in the fall of 93, and, it, and it's a big battle inside the Democratic Party. Labor's against it. Uh, Northern uh, and Midwestern uh, Democrats are against it. Uh, they, it passes with Republican votes and really a minority of Democratic votes. I mean, Bill Clinton was a terrible leader of the Democratic Party. Uh, it mm. passes. Um, now, NAFTA, well, the Mexican economy is kind of small. It's about the size of Southern California. Um, mm. NAFTA... Uh, would, would, you know, it, actually, Ross Perot was not right about a giant sucking sound with NAFTA. He'd be, if that was applied <laughs> to China, yes, but not with NAFTA. Um, however, NAFTA was, in, was toxic and politically import, uh, 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 disastrous. A, it's on America's footstep, uh, you know, uh, footstep. B, it did generate a huge uh, uh, migration, legal and illegal, uh, into the U.S. Mm. And this is because one of the elements of NAFTA was that American agriculture, which was very efficient, would be able to sell over time corn and beans and all that. And, the, you know, the basic staples of the Mexican economy and the, the, the staples by which 10 or 20 million Mexican small farmers depended. And these things would now undercut them. So you had this vast migration of Mexican peasants from the countryside to the cities of Mexico and then to the border. And so NAFTA, had, NAFTA its, its, its uh, effect was to generate this enormous pressure for migration, uh, to, well, both to Mexican cities and then to the, to the, to the U.S. Well, that, have, of course, has huge political consequences. So NAFTA is a, is very, no. is a toxic, a politically toxic more so even than economically, but, you know, it's both, but, it's, but, but politically as, as much as economically it was. And the political consequence of, of NAFTA, one, you know, one, you, think, you talk about, you know, uh, factories, uh, you know, jobs lost. The jobs were lost to Mexico and Central America. They weren't exactly like the high uh, wage, uh, you know, skilled jobs in Detroit. Some factories went. They were like the branch plants. Uh, apparel factories or or uh, mm. auto parts factories or the people who made brooms and and toys mm. in in often in southern and rural parts of the American South where these small low wage factories have been established they were the ones that go to Mexico uh, mm. and so so this kind of throughout Arkansas for example there's a whole uh, uh, depopulation of these small manufacturing towns in, in the rural areas. And one consequence of that is the, and some, his, some historians have looked at this, that the, the, there was a, a in 1994 elections, the, there was a wipeout of 
white Southern Democratic congressmen. They are wiped out. Mm. Uh, that's the year when the Republicans become the majority party from the South in Congress. And NAFTA was probably the major cause of that uh, uh, because of its toxicity. Hmm. So tell me, tell me this. You, you mentioned it there. I'm, I'm curious about this. You, you can just talk specifics if, if you want. Why was this polarizing for Democrats? Why were some Democrats for NAFTA and other Democrats were not for NAFTA? What was the big, I guess, debate there within yeah. the Democratic Party? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, you know, there, there was a whole bevy of, well, free trade. Trade had been, had been a, liberals had supported free trade going back to the 40s and 50s. That had been a liberal thing. Uh-huh. Free trade seemed to be associated with uh, an open world, uh, uh, hostile to, to, you know, uh, whether it's a communist uh, in Eastern Europe or, or the fascist in Germany before that or the, or the Japanese co-prosperity sphere. <laughs> you know, free trade would, you know, was to open up those kind of blocks. So uh, like the, the ILGWU, the, um, which was the uh, garment union, uh, you know, uh, well, composed of lots, of lots of Jews and Italians and whatnot. They were, you know, and even though garments are, were one of the first uh, uh, industries that would, could move abroad and, and could, could uh, threaten, you know, compete with, a, with American, you know, uh, uh, manufacturers, the ILGB was very much in favor of free trade because they saw it, they saw it as a pro-democratic and anti-fascist, anti-authoritarian uh, thing. So that was the, that was the labor movement. Well, that would, of course, change in the 70s and 80s. But there was that 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 element of it. And every economist uh, worth their salt was telling the American public free trade is a net benefit. And it is in this sense that, yes, the 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 the, from a consumer point of view, products are cheaper. That's right. They are. You know, whether when you're buying your, your Japanese or, or Chinese or what, you know, I'm wearing my my sneakers, my, my tennis sneakers right now. And, and they're, they're all made in, in South China and they're cheaper. However, it, the impact of, of, of trade of that sort has a, is sort of targeted on specific industries in the U.S. So the shoe manufacturing, you know, in Lynn, Massachusetts is wiped out uh, or, you know, uh, or say auto parts in California are wiped out because they, they can. And so trade has that, you know, yes, on, a, on an aggregate uh, sense, trade is, is beneficial to consumers, but it has tremendous impact on specific industries, specific regions. And so uh, so if, if you were in, in California, for example, uh, Democratic liberals tended to vote for free trade or New York state. But if you were in Michigan or Ohio, they were, they'd be against it. So, but, but it did divide, it, it, it more than divided the Democratic Party. By the end of the Clinton administration, a majority of Democrats are voting against these trade initiatives of the Clinton administration, a majority. So I guess what was the kind of epilogue, I guess, for what uh, the Trump administration had done? They kind of rebranded it, called it something different. People said it was, you know, probably a little bit too much more of uh, than what it was. It really was kind of like NAFTA. What is the current iteration of our, our trade agreement? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's it called? It's called the um, M. Uh, uh, I forgot the exact name, but they did renegotiate it. Uh, even some liberals say that, that Trump did appoint. When it came to trade, some people who were, you know, they were, you know, 
tougher. They were they were they were better. Mm-hmm. They, they 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 wanted they wanted some real uh, um, uh, shifts in, in in the nature of these free trade pacts. And the the new one with with Canada and Mexico um, uh, does do what NAFTA didn't do. For example, on the labor side, it it has it's much tougher uh, in a number of mechanisms uh, uh, permitting uh, uh, Mexican workers to form. Uh, their own real independent unions. And that has taken place at, at a big General Motors plant in Mexico. It, wow. And they have a real union there. Wow. And so that means wages and working conditions can get much better, which means you don't have this enormous wage cliff between the U.S. and Mexico. Um, reduces the incentive to put to put, to put uh, uh, plants in Mexico. And, and then when workers are earning more money in Mexico, it means they can they can buy stuff themselves. So that is I mean, that that was a, that was it is definitely a better a better a, a plan. I mean, of course, it took 25 years of experience, you know, uh, and, and seeing that 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 the, any any labor sign agreements in the original NAFTA were just ineffective and weren't working. So there's some teeth into that. I would say the other thing about, about NAFTA, by the way, and, and many of these other trade packs is. Um, again, it new the new industries that are coming on, like Silicon Valley, for example. Um, while the Mexican government was was extraordinarily hostile to allowing uh, any international mechanism to say anything about workers' rights, uh, when it came to the penetration of the Mexican court system, uh, judicial system, and, and so that that intellectual property would be protected uh, in Mexico you know, stuff, say, produced by, by Microsoft or something or Apple. Mm. Well, there, yeah. And if you look at, at the, at the thousand-page NAF, uh, NAFTA agreement, as it was originally set up, and the current one as well, uh, you know, huge proportions of it are how, you know, holders of intellectual property, mm. pharmaceutical companies, mm-hmm. uh, Silicon Valley, uh, also at Hollywood, uh, will protect that property, uh, you know, in the court system, of whether it's Mexico and then more recently in China. Hmm. I mean, that that's where the, the, the I mean, that's where the economic power in the U.S. They're the ones who can really export. You aren't, we aren't going to export any cars to China, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or, or Mexico, but we are going to export, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, software yeah. and farm and pharmaceuticals and uh, and the things of that sort. Hmm. It's, it's interesting how it's always this push-pull, right? We want to make things here in the U.S. And, yeah. and be able to, you know, sell other places, but we also want to be uh, hospitable to other partners and have good partnerships. It's always a kind of push pull, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting the reforms we made. So two final kind of topics here, I guess they're a little bit different. And uh, okay. so one of them was, is this crime bill and it w- it became highly controversial oh, yeah. a couple of years ago, again, in the news, I know bill came out and said he regrets it or something like that, but let me just ask this, I guess uh, at the time, uh, at the time, things were really tough. Things were, there was a lot of violence at, at the time in, 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 uh, in the early 90s. And there was a lot of gangs, especially over there in, in California on the West Coast. And there was a lot of issues, right? There was a need. And even the Congressional Black Caucus voted for a lot of this, some progressives there. It received enough to, to, uh, votes to pass. But now people are doing this kind of revisionist history. You know, we're looking at 2023 eyes and being like, oh, maybe this was tough mm-hmm. on certain groups of people, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, which is fair in some ways. But at the same time, at the time, it was different. Things were a lot different. Yeah. H- how do we, I guess, well, two questions. One, what was the Clinton administration's idea with this crime bill at, in, in the early 90s? And then how have we 
kind of, you know, reassessed it now 30 years later. Right. Well, right. So the crime bill of 19 passed in 1994. So that's when Clinton had a, when Democrats had Congress, uh, it had, uh, it did have uh, several billion dollars for grants to the states to construct new prisons and also to have this so-called three strikes in your out, yeah. very draconian kind yeah, of yeah. law, which meant, which ended up putting lots of people in, in prison for a long time, really on drug deals. Um, it, it, it also, um, uh, had, um, uh, that was, that was, those were the ma- major provisions, but there were other, there were some sort of liberal <laughs> elements to it. For example, a ban on, on assault r- uh, rifles, yeah. you know, for 10 years. Yeah. Uh, and also uh, there were some uh, social welfare things like midnight basketball. <laughs> uh, and then also a violence against uh, a women uh, part. Right. There was a, right. there been a separate law that was put together. And so, um, but it was, but it's, but, and, and, but one of the motivating things for this was, uh, and here's where the sort of pure, almost ideology takes over, um, beginning with the um, the the kind of blackouts in the late 70s and sort of the kind of uh, kind of uh, chaos in places like New York uh, during that. And then um, and then the rise or there were crack cocaine did produce a lot of urban violence. It's true. Absolutely true. Uh, there there was developed a a, um, uh, a, theor- a kind of theories of criminality by these sort of neoconservative ideologues. Uh, John Delinio was one of them, and um, James Wilson was another. They were sociologists, and they became, they became quite, uh, quite influential. Mm. And uh, the phrase, um, what was it called? Juvenile predators. Yeah, yeah. That phrase, which Hillary Clinton would use, I, I was able to trace the, where that came from, from a kind of academic uh, kind of publication through the uh, National Review, that's the conservative, and then into the White House, and and you could sort and, and Cl- Hillary Clinton picked it up and you and would use that phrase in in the in the nineteen nineties. Um, so, uh, but but it's but it is also true that this fear of crime, whether real or imagined, and to some extent is imagined, w- was something the Democrats and here the DLC was influential. Thought, oh, we have to you know kind of. Uh, uh, protect ourselves, inure ourselves against Republican uh, critique. And so you have Joe Biden uh, in the midst of this debate saying, the Democrats are the ones who are proposing 100,000 new jail cells, you know, for criminals. The Democrats are the ones who want to get tough. I mean, you're making that clear, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and you have people like, for example, Barney, I uh, know, uh, uh, um, 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 uh, uh, socialist. <laughs> Bernie Sanders? Um, Bernie Sanders yeah. votes in favor of the bill. I mean, he says, I don't like the prison part of it, but I'm in all in favor of the assault, the assault weapons ban and the, uh, and the uh, violence against women uh, section of it. Uh, so I'm voting for it, you know, right. and it's, you know, he, got, he did. And uh, two thirds of the black caucus voted in favor of it. Mm. Um, now it, at the, again, at the time, at the time, uh, theories of the carceral state were not uh, uh, prevalent. Uh, and it was not that controversial at that time. More controversial would, would be the the reform of welfare uh, welfare, which take place two years later. That was that was a a, a bill that that generated uh, re- resignations in protests from the Clinton administration, but not the crime bill. It will be later yeah. uh, when Hillary Clinton uh, begins to run for president, and in the twenty first century, 
that the idea that this the idea that the crime bill and it was uh, contributed to the right to the you know the carceral state to the uh, racially discriminatory uh, you know imprisonment of African Americans and Latinos yep. and it did yep. uh, and you know and and that's when it would become a kind of major issue and it was also that was the period also when Bill Clinton uh, and I think Hillary too. Uh, and others would say, well, it was a mistake. We shouldn't have done it, you know, et, et cetera. But, uh, but it, at the time, and this, this is, you know, again, um, uh, you know, uh, historians have to parse out, you know, where do politicians have real kind of free will, as it were, yeah. and where are they being swept along by, by kind of ideological <laughs> yeah. social currents that, that they just sort of accept as, mm-hmm. as um, you know, necessary. Now, I w- let me, can I say yeah, one more yeah, thing? Yeah. I, Clinton, again, it just shows the going into the 92 campaign and even before that and then afterwards, Clinton announces to everyone who will listen, my favorite sociologist is William Julius Wilson, (laughs) the African-American sociologist from Chicago, whose whose argument was that to eliminate crime, to strengthen the black family, we need a massive program of jobs. You know, in the in the urban in the central city, we you know we don't need lectures or or or, or prison cells. Uh, you know, lectures on morality or prison cells. What we need is massive jobs. And Clinton goes all over the place uh, and to every audience saying he's the guy. Yes, and he, and Wilson's invited to the to the White House, and 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 that's what Clinton wanted. Wanted now he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it at all. But that's what he. That's where he, his mind was, or at least for a while. And. Uh, uh, and, and eventually, uh, William Julius will say, "I'm very." William Julius Wilson will say, "I'm very disappointed in Clinton." He, you know, uh, he, he did. He, I thought he was taking my ideas, but he, but actually, in the in the sort of meat grinder of legislation, many of my key ideas were abandoned, and, and only the most, only the harshest uh, were were kept in the bill. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the it's, it's interesting. I, this whole presentism kind of thing always kind of is a wrestling yeah, point right. of sorts. I, I don't I don't know how I feel yeah. about it, but uh, it's interesting though. So one of the last uh, points here I want to bring up, I guess, uh, from, from the book is this kind of uh, back to economics. You know, I think Summers has been called the Kissinger of economics, uh, <laughs> fairly or unfairly, right. uh, and the. You talk about the importance of uh, Stiglitz opposing Rubin yeah. and Summers' approach. Yeah. So you could talk about that generally, but this space where Clinton repeals Glass-Steagall, mm-hmm. and we all know what happened, right? You know what happened in 07 and 08 with the crash and everything. So I guess just talk about, I guess more second term, I guess, Clinton now, economically with Summers, why they re- re- uh, voted to uh, repeal Glass, or why Clinton uh, repealed Glass-Steagall. Mm-hmm. And we see the impact that had, you know, a couple of years later. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, the second term is is much more. Uh, he's more conservative. The liberals sort of leave. A lot of them do, and 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 Clinton is is stuck with uh, with uh, uh, Robert Rubin. And then, then when the Monica Lewinsky scandal comes along, really Clinton, uh, his moral authority and really his authority is is yeah. diminished yeah. considerably, and so. People like Rubin are more influential. Now, Glass-Steagall, which was the, the separation of commercial banking from investment banking. Investment banking is the, the higher risk kind of banking in which 
in which uh, uh, banks uh, are floating, uh, um, uh, you know, bonds and, and in various kinds of investments, including derivatives and whatnot. Uh, commercial banking is just sort of giving le- giving loans, uh, not just to homeowners, but also to you know companies. Anyway, so it's a more stayed anyway. So that had been those two kinds of banking had been divided in the Great Depression uh, by Carter Glass and uh, Stiegel. I forget who Stiegel's first name is. Anyway, and that was the, the Glass-Steagall, they'd been divided, and it had the effect of, of making banking much more boring, so-called, and, 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 and the kind of speculation more difficult. The Federal Reserve was actually in charge of enforcing Glass-Steagall, and over the years, before Clinton came in and during Clinton, the Federal Reserve, under uh, Alan Greenspan, who came in uh, in the late 80s, uh, they, the, the Federal Reserve itself began to weaken this distinction. And they would say, well, uh, you know, um, uh, investment banks can purchase, you know, uh, 25% of commercial banks or vice versa, or let commercial banks, you know, they can also do what investment banks do to a, you know, to a degree. So over the, the years, this Glass-Steagall was being eroded in any event. Mm. Um, it was. And but so but by 1998 and 99, uh, you know, the uh, the Treasury Department uh, was you know, said, well, look, the distinction is not there anymore. Uh, besides, you know, where economic efficiency means we don't want to have these artificial uh, depression era constraints on what banks can do. Uh, our competitors abroad are doing it anyway. So let's um, uh, abolish, uh, you know, uh, re- repeal Glass-Steagall. And they do in, I think the year, I think it's 99, 98 or 99. Um, now, Actually, and here the liberals like Stieglitz and Alan Blinder would say the repeal of Glass-Steagall did not produce the 2008-2009 crash. That because it was, you know, if it hadn't been repealed, there were plenty of investment banks that were that were that had trillions mm. of these derivatives, <laughs> toxic derivatives around. What what more important than 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 the, the repeal of Glass Steagall was the complete Wild West world of of derivatives, which the Clinton administration also uh, opened the door to. Uh, there was an internal debate. There was an internal debate about it. Mm. Uh, some people, uh, a woman named Boxley Bourne, who was head of the Commodity Future Trading Corporation, uh, which was in theory in charge of derivatives, uh, was very much against uh, uh, allowing them, you know, willy-nilly to be just anyone could issue them and there be no, no, no guidelines. But, that, but she lost and she was tossed out of the, the government. And it was the Summers and, the, and, the, and Robert Rubens and others who, who won that. And, and you got this explosive growth of these so-called derivatives, which are, are very speculative and really are an enormous leverage, uh, which means that when something goes wrong, everything goes wrong. And that, we can already see that in the late 90s with the collapse of 
long-term capital, uh, uh, LT, uh, uh, you know, company, a kind of collapse of that, uh, that this, uh, tr- this trading company, which, you know, the federal reserve had to come in and, and, to, and, and really, uh, uh protected so that, uh, uh, the, the, the fever wouldn't spread to all of wall street, uh, that we already saw that. And by 2008, 2009, you have a, just a dominoes falling as a result of the, of the collapse of the, uh, a collapse of some of these derivatives. And that was probably more important mm. than the repeal of Glass-Steagall. But Glass-Steagall was symbolically important uh, and, uh, you know, uh, indicating that, you know, the, the the regulatory strictures of the New Deal, which had produced decades of stability yeah. uh, in banking, forget about it. Mm. They're over. Yeah. So we when we think about all these these issues uh and you know all these challenges and we we there's plenty we didn't talk about obviously you know but uh but there's there's a, there's a lot of good stuff in there of course and you know what what uh how do we view the legacy of 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 the Clinton administration economically again the the book is you know a fabulous failure it does sound like there's a lot of failures there it sounds like there was a lot of acquiescing to certain things there was a lot of you know, hedging on things. There's a lot, you know, and it, it wasn't the, it wasn't the rebirth of, you know, Kennedy as many people thought it was going to be in 92. And it really was a, a kind of a, a dud in a lot of ways. So what's the kind of legacy? Maybe yeah. was there anything positive that he did that you did like, uh, of sorts? <laughs> but uh, yeah, what's the, what's the legacy? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the legacy is the understanding that capitalism is not a self-correcting system, <laughs> and um, many, many, yeah, many people, many people of uh, 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 you know uh, great import, great influence and importance thought that was the case. They also thought it was sort of almost a, uh, a socially and um, and uh, politically beneficial. That is one of the arguments for opening trade with China and other countries was this will produce a civil society in these countries. Uh, which leading to a kind of at least, uh, you know, kind of bourgeois rights for mm. many citizens. I mean, the argument would be, look, if you're going to have a stock exchange in in Shanghai, <laughs> uh, which is going to, then you have to have accurate, you know, economic data. Mm. And then that means you have to have newspapers or mm. whatever, which will, you know, have are unfettered and, and, and produce the truth rather than propaganda, government propaganda. That was part of the argument. And so, so uh, you know, people like Gene Sperling, currently in the Biden administration and others were, were making the point, look, free trade is not just going to benefit, uh, you know, American uh, industry and workers. It's going gonna, it's gonna to democratize China. Uh, they were very fervent. They made that point very strongly. And that, that clearly is a mistake. But I think that the main thing is that capitalism is not a self-correcting system. And therefore, Joe Biden and the, the current administration clearly learned a lot from the Clinton people. Mm. Uh, and, and, and many of them had served in the Obama administration. And so we do have a industrial policy far more ambitious and, 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 and many times more much money than was even imagined by Clinton liberals yeah. in 1992. Uh, and, you know, I think, and then also a trade union movement, uh, which is uh, robust, at least the beginning to be. And I think with this recent UAW strike, yeah. which was, a what was it all about? It was about, are we going to have high wage jobs in the new uh, industry of the future, that is electric, electric vehicles. And it yeah. seems to be we're on the track for that. The, mm. the, you know, the, the, the government supported the workers and the workers program was really in, in, to sustain the industrial policy of the 
Biden administration. So I think that there, I mean, I don't know whether they're having sitting around saying, oh, well, under Clinton, we did it wrong. But I think the, the knowledge of that, the understanding that the uh, uh, market itself is, is imperfect, I think that's very clear. Uh, that we that's one of the lessons that we've learned at least and real policymakers, not just academics, you know, often, um, you know, in, in having conferences. Hmm. So I think that's very important. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's great. Awesome. The uh, the book is called A, A Fabulous Failure, uh, The Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism. This is out through uh, Princeton University Press. Everyone can uh, go and pick that up. Uh, Nelson, this was too much fun. I had so much, so much fun talking to you about all of these things. I, I, you, you've, you've scratched that, that political itch that I get all, uh, often. So I, I really appreciate you coming on here and giving us your, your time and, and your wisdom. Uh, so, so big, big, big thanks. Delighted to be here. Thank you.